Hey, before we start the show, I want to share something with you. You're about to take part in a rich conversation, and sometimes that might leave you wanting more. Well, we've got more for the most motivated among us. And if that's you, I'd like to invite you in to an inner circle of sorts. Here's how it works. Just take out your smartphone and send me a text. I want you to text HTSPOD, all one word, to 855-909-1350. Once you've texted me, you won't miss the bonus conversation we're having and any chance for us to connect further. That's all I got. So enjoy the show. Your problem is not a lack of resources. It's not a lack of money or technology or contacts. It's not. It's your psychology. Those words from Tony Robbins have been heard by thousands. But it doesn't change the fact that the problems he's referring to are real cut-to-the-bone challenges. The fact of the matter is, since we're human, we're all going to be well acquainted with our fair share of challenges. Add to that this idea that you, the listener, is here to pursue your peak expression, I've got news for you. Adversity might as well be a roommate at this point. Invite her in. Adversity lives in your life now. You might be saying to yourself, but Logan, you said this season is about the advantages given to those on this journey to best self. To which I'd say, you're exactly right. But here's the secret. Whether you're pursuing your highest expression or you're actively avoiding it, you're going to experience adversity in either case. The kicker is, those who are in pursuit are much better at it. I'm Logan Gelbrick, and I'm here to invite you to take up more leadership as a way to better understand life's most important topics. This is... The Hold the Standard Podcast. Life is difficult, and you cannot protect your children. What you can do is prepare them, and you can prepare them to be strong and courageous and truthful and resilient and reciprocal in their interactions with other people. And that means you equip them for what life will be, which is at minimum a series of difficult challenges and and often more than that because, of course, people go through very difficult times in their lives. And a, a resilient person is capable of standing up to things in the face of fear and moving forward voluntarily, convinced of their own competence and ability to prevail. And so the primary, your primary goal as a parent, apart from facilitating your child's social desirability, which is a major obligation on your part, is to encourage your children and to, and I mean that literally, to instill in them a sense of courage in the face of the difficulties of life and not to protect them from that. We don't even want to be protected from those difficulties because a major part of life and its meaning is the challenge that comes with confronting difficulties. That was the author clinical psychologist and professor Jordan Peterson 
advocating for the integration rather than the separation of challenge and life itself for our youth. While I'm not a parent, I have observed this catch-22 from a distance. It goes something like this. I love my children, therefore I shall protect them. Meanwhile, it's specifically how they overcome challenge that will ultimately propel them or prevent them from true success. In my book, Going Right, I acknowledge this exact paradox on an individual biological level. This catch-22 is written in our DNA. Seeking safety is completely logical in a game where victory is survival. That said, if we maximally sought safety, we'd never leave the cave to become the remarkably capable species that we are today. Shout out to episode one and the curiosity that began this whole journey in the first place. When it comes to this episode, we aren't going to harp on the bad times, but rather we're going to unpack the universally important power of resilience to it. If you want to be a master student of this resilience to adversity characteristic, you're going to have to know that I just used the words universally important on purpose. We're here to acknowledge that no one makes it through without adversity touching them. And therefore, no one can afford to be an amateur on this topic. So here's a six foot seven famous white male worth $600 million acknowledging that. Despite what it looks like, adversity touches everyone. My mother was a really good woman. I didn't talk about it when she's alive. And I frankly, even if she passed, I didn't talk about it until one day I was sitting in front of a group of 30 kids that are all were abused by their parents. And, um, and I told them that, you know, your biography is not your destiny and you're not defined by what happened. But I could see in their eyes a big, tall, white, rich guy, you know, he doesn't understand. And so I told them the whole story. My mom beating me against the wall till my head bled, pouring liquid soap down my throat till I threw up. So I think in order to protect my younger brother and sister, I had to become a practical psychologist. That drove me, and I developed moxie to be able to deal with stuff. So that was the gift. If my mom had been the mother that I wanted to be, I wouldn't be the man I'm proud to be, I think. So that was the gift in it. Tony Robbins' invitation to accept adversity as a part of life that is worth acknowledging is also shared by author Robert Greene known for his six international best-selling books, including The 48 Laws of Power. People who grew up in the hood, who dealt with a lot of adversity and harshness in life, that can crush you, that can turn you into a criminal, that can turn you into a drug addict, etc. But it can also elevate you into something because the harshness of life is reality. That is our ground. Life is difficult. Life is competitive. There's a lot of pain, physical pain, that's facing us. That is reality. And when you're facing reality on a daily basis, you're schooled in it. And it forces you to develop yourself. It forces you to develop inner strength. So people who face adversity also have this idea, well, I, I can handle anything because nothing could be worse than what I faced on the streets. Because if you can take pain and think of it as something affirmative and good, that means you accept all aspects of life. So people who have had it hard and who have suffered a lot, I think often develop a better relationship to life. 
Earlier this season, you met my friend Vava Ribeiro. He's a renowned Brazilian photographer whose wisdom transcends art. In our conversation, he beautifully illustrates the process of collecting exposures to adversity. He suggests projecting those experiences into the future to show up as a more evolved human. This is how he demonstrates more readiness for life. The problems that I had when I became a photographer and then the difficulties that I had with my work, um, the things that I the, the the hard times that I had prior to that were the ones that gave me the thick skin to to you know to go through it. Um, but you know, growing up in Rio, you know, in the eighties, um, in a place where economics play a role, and and I don't know if you know much about Brazil, Rio, it's a place where Funny enough, everybody goes to the beach and there's a huge gap between the rich and the poor, but the beach is an equalizer. Everybody's half naked. You don't know if you're rich or if you're poor. You don't have a room to drive your Porsche or your, your car or nobody wears jewelry on the beach anyway. So it's an equalizer. So you're exposed to like the wealth and the poor and they're both somehow interacting and you suck up experience from the rich and from the poor. And then you're moving on through your life with that sense of like, you know, this sense of extremes. And at some point when I started travel, like, you know, I, I've had to like, I just knew that I wanted to travel. And then from my early stages of traveling, I remember like my first trip ever outside of the country. I was 16 years old. I was the only young guy uh, on a trip with guys who were like 22, 24. And we were traveling to Peru to the north of Peru to surf. So I've always been like the little guy who would like hang out with the older guys. And we're in the north of Peru and this place called Mancora, which is a perfect left at the time. There was a ghost town, there was nothing there. And there was one fisherman village and at night we're there, the waves are supposed to be perfect the next day. We're about to go to sleep. Then the lights of the town shut down. And then I remember like people running around, hey, you know, El Sendero, El Sendero, El Sendero. It's like, what the fuck's going on? What the fuck's going on? And then this lady goes like, well, it's the Sendero Luminoso, the Shining Path. It's the first Peruvian terrorist group. They used to shut down the power lines, attack town, kill everybody and steal their passports and their money. So <laughs> the whole town ran into the desert to hide. And we were like, what the fuck's going on? We just ran to the desert and you know, hang out in the desert, in the darkness, in silence for like three or four hours. That's me at 16 being exposed to terrorists. I was like, what the hell is a terrorist? You know, and, and then you learn, and you, like that builds you up through like, you know, you, you start to like get exposed to experience that when you face adversity, it's like, fuck, I've been through that. I've been through this. I've seen terrorists in Peru, man. I, I can't deal with whatever it is in front of me. One of the classic areas in which many people pursue their peak expression is in their work. Naturally, the importance of confronting and managing adversity is part and parcel with life in the business world. Christina Ramirez knows the minefield of adversity that entrepreneurs face very well. She's the founder of Plus Ultra, a nationwide sustainable toothbrush brand. You may recall her from episode one. I met her in the aisles of Whole Foods. 
where she obtained an entry-level position stocking shelves just to somehow complete her mission to get her product into the retail giant. Imagine this. You're a young female in L.A., you sneak your way into a job you don't want at Whole Foods to somehow start a toothbrush company. Your number one competitor is a company founded 184 years ago. And they did $71 billion in revenue last year. While you can't yet afford extra guac on your lunch break, you do finally get the first shipment in of your toothbrush design that will serve as your first impression with Whole Foods buyers. What could go wrong, Christina? Yeah, I had one sample. You had one toothbrush? Yeah. Okay. Just keep it in the box. <laughs> keep it super clean. Yeah. Pull it out for special yep. meetings. Yep. Okay, so you had one toothbrush. <laughs> I, I'm imagining this. And you're, you shop it to buyers. Look at my toothbrush. And if they say, what happens? They give you a PO? What happens? They- yeah, they say, okay, here, um, here's 32 POs. Uh, here's a date that you have to fulfill it by and, you know, send it to all the stores. And so that sounds super easy if you have like a truckload of product. But if you have zero product, it's very hard. Yes. And it takes time. And, um, you know, when I first manufactured, I'd trusted a, a factory I had visited and I, you know, shook hands and flew back to LA and I was like, okay, ready to receive. And they shipped product over and I was like, I'm just going to quality control this right before, you know, I put it on the shelves. And um, I had, I took all the cashiers and I gave them all a toothbrush and I told them to go brush their teeth on their break in the bathroom and let me know what their experience was like. And that was like my little control group right there. And like half of the people came back and they're like, bristles fell out in my mouth. And I was like, fuck i was like half of you said bristles fell out half of you said it didn't i can't figure this out um so it's all damaged so i couldn't use any of those toothbrushes and that was a very early on uh lesson for me not only in having to figure out how to quality control in a foreign country but also how to have very difficult conversations so i had to go to the buyers and say Hey guys, I really appreciate this opportunity that you gave me to like launch in the region, but I fucked up royally and I have no product to sell for our launch that was last week. So I need a little bit more time. And I'm so grateful that they were like, hey, take the time you need, make a good product and let us know when you're ready to launch. Wow. And that really settled a lot of my anxiety and allowed me to just to focus on getting the product and getting the quality control right and nailing it. Mm-hmm. And because they did that, um, I was able to, you know, figure it out, create a quality control process, knew I had to, you know, quality control it over there before they shipped it. So that really changed the game for me. I threw up a little in my mouth when she told me that story. But these stories are important, especially because if we're not careful we will look to incredibly successful people like Tony Robbins or Chef Antonio Lafaso and see all of their success and assume that it came without the hardships that you and I can relate to much more easily. By the time I met Chef Antonia, she was already a star on the Food Network. So it was sobering to sit down with her and hear that her path 
hasn't been without consequential adversity too. So my first restaurant failed miserably. Mm-hmm. I stopped cooking, thought I was going to never cook again, went into like a deep depression, like didn't leave my house. Do you know what I mean? And it took, you know, Zaya's dad like basically being like, you need to put your hands on some chicken to get yourself out of this funk. What are right. you doing? You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Not play you know not being like it's totally fine for you to be mm-hmm. devastated right now like figure it out get up brush your oh. knees off like you scraped your knee put a band-aid on where are you going like keep going and <clears throat> n- looking back at it i'm like oh my god the level of this incredible feeling of success would i even understand it and know it if i didn't know what it felt like to have it not work right you know and never wanting that to happen ever again so every decision that i made it was a huge lesson. It was sure. a lesson that was like, I never make those mistakes in the in business anymore. I never make those mistakes in restaurants anymore because that's how epic that fail was. The scientific literature has actually proven that humans psychologically overemphasize our own failures and downplay our successes. While we unanimously exaggerate the success and minimize the adversity of others. This is due in part because of how we experience time. For example, when I learn who Jay-Z is, I first experience the present moment, which is obviously full of success. When I later learn that he had a tumultuous upbringing, the harshness of his reality and the uncertainty he faced is completely blunted by the fact that I know he's a billionaire business mogul and music icon. For Jay-Z, he didn't have the benefit of experiencing his story in reverse, knowing the happy ending first. Conversely, I, like you, have experienced my life in chronological order, full of uncertainty and with an expertise in all of the feelings of struggle along the way. Speaking of struggle along the way, Deuce Gym, a business I started 10 years ago, was hit with a thunderbolt of adversity this year of unprecedented proportions. This is the perfect case study because if you know anything about the organizational structure of our Deuce Gym locations, you know that it mimics the path we're talking about in this season of the podcast. We have internal processes to ensure our employees demonstrate uncommon levels of commitment, like we talked about in episode two. And our coach's development structure is built in a way to accumulate a large body of the most deliberate practice, like we talked about in the last episode. Our internal culture requires edge work, efforts that stretch us, and the important but difficult feedback loops of those processes means that we are choosing adversity and building resilience that will help us when unknown bouts of adversity strike, in theory. This is the perfect case study because if you know anything about the organizational structure of our Deuce Gym locations, you know that it mimics the path we're talking about in this season of the podcast. We have internal processes to ensure 
that our employees demonstrate uncommon levels of commitment, just like we talked about in episode two. And our coach's development structure is built in a way to accumulate a large body of the most deliberate practice, like we talked about in the last episode. Our internal culture that requires edge work, efforts that stretch us, and the important but difficult feedback loops of those processes means that we are choosing adversity and building resilience that will help us when unknown bouts of adversity strike, in theory. When COVID-19 made gathering for fitness illegal worldwide, our theory would be put to the test. Keep in mind that I proclaim that Deuce knowingly uses its developmental structure and shared leadership to not just endure adversity, but that we use it for our evolution. I even have the audacity to teach a course proclaiming these things called the Hold the Standard Summit all around the world. And while I absolutely believed in the principles that I've taught, COVID-19 would be the first life or death test of this company. One of the attributes that I talk about in the summit is anti-fragility. It's a concept coined by mathematician, options trader, and author Nassim Taleb. It goes on to clarify that the opposite of a fragile structure isn't just one that resists damage during adverse events, but rather is improved by it. My arrogant ass has been traveling the world claiming that Deuce Jim was an anti-fragile company, and we were about to find out if that was true or not. Since I began this audio docuseries project, I was encouraged by our director, Ernesto Hurtado, to record short audio clips just on my cell phone as I moved about my life in case they would become relevant for the show. While I wasn't religious about making these recordings, I did do some, and they happened to be while I was in the middle of one of the greatest challenges the fitness industry has ever seen. It's 11.53 on May 1st, 2020. We've been on the COVID-19 lockdown for well over a month. Standing outside of a brick shop on Venice Boulevard. And I got cash in hand for some used dumbbells. Been probably driving over 500 miles the last three days, picking up as many one-off dumbbells, new and used as I can to keep this gym alive. What you're hearing in that clip is the real-time experience of an effort unknown to mankind. They say we respond to threat in one of three ways. Fight, flight, or freeze. Countless micro-gyms saw the writing on the wall and closed up shop on their own volition, while countless others froze. 
They, of course, later perished, but not by choice. Deuce Jim adapted to the pandemic environment by attacking with a fight that proved to be unprecedented in the industry. Seeing the impending pandemic coming, I circled our entire team from all Deuce locations on a Zoom call and communicated that we would be closing indefinitely due to the pandemic, even before we would be forced to. Remember, there is so much more empowered psychology in choosing your struggle rather than being victim to it. We then used both our commitment to the mission, just like episode two, and our large body of work, just like episode three, to build out not just a short-term solution to COVID, but a long-term asset that would make us a bigger, stronger company due to the pandemic. At the time, we liked to repeat the quote, never let a good crisis go to waste. As a result, we built Delta Bravo, the Deuce at-home training experience. Basically, we had to find a way to bring the world's best training to the world under very different constraints. So, what's the single best way to drive strength and conditioning adaptation in a human being when you close every gym in the world? Well, you get everyone a perfect pair of heavy dumbbells and you progress their fitness with the most amount of upside with the least invasive space and equipment needs. This, of course, came with a dumbbell shortage that the world has never seen and why the first 400 members of Delta Bravo were set up with dumbbells that we bought used from the garages and backyards of people from Anaheim to Pasadena. It's just after 8 p.m. on Monday, May 4th. Just handed over $160 cash for a pair of 40 pound dumbbells. And I got two more stops tonight. What I'm basically participating in is a very intricate underground black market for fitness equipment and I'm learning a lot Uh, I've got cash in the front seat and almost $6,000 in my Venmo account and this is what the COVID-19 crisis has turned to good news is every possible way to source dumbbells is uh, being enacted right now including a 20-foot container of about $19,000 worth of dumbbells direct from China with a custom logo and all of that. Uh, But the game we're playing now is bridging the gap. How do we get uh, equipment in people's hands between now and then? And I think we have a really successful, fruitful opportunity on our hands little bit of the dog days now but we're building something cool we got our 300 310th member today on our digital training experience and if we can get supply chain dialed in this crisis might turn into a separator that's our plan anyway 
um, I'm downtown, downtown Los Angeles, and I think the next stop is Anaheim. 40-pound dumbbells coming up. It's May 23rd, I believe, starting the 11th week of quarantine. And I just left Silmar to pick up a pair of 55-pound dumbbells from a guy. And it's so telling to hear, uh, you know, I'm using an app called uh, Let Go, Let Go app. And uh, I messaged the guy, uh, hey, send me your address. And he was like, uh, you've been here before. And he sent me the address again. And it was specifically the third time I've been out to this guy's house to buy a used pair of dumbbells. Anyway, um, a couple more stops. Basically, the update is uh, still bridging the gap and filling local dumbbell orders sort of piecemeal, one at a time. Um, one of our backup supplies from Walmart.com was slated to arrive last Wednesday, and that would have really helped the local dumbbell supply scene for Delta Bravo. But uh, it's nowhere to be found, so FedEx has it somewhere. So I'm going to do a couple more pickups today to kind of fill out these few uh, requests from motivated folks. But once we get real supply chain in, we're going to switch on the marketing thing and really open it up. It's been crazy. But I feel like this time is going to put us in a new conversation and I think Deuce and the team is really stepping up into that and uh, I'm just excited I'm motivated and I'm driving all over town picking up dumbbells one at a time which feels silly but this thing is built in a way to really grow um, since the last time I checked in sort of completed the back-end fulfillment. So what's happening now is 18,000 kilos, which is about 37,000 pounds or so. That might need a fact check, but 18,000 kilos of uh, dumbbell weight being manufactured in China right now with a super sweet Delta Bravo logo on there, custom. It's a 20-foot shipping container full of weights that, um, yeah, they're coming over, uh, I think we're 35 days out or so, and they're going to go directly to a fulfillment house, which will integrate with our back-end uh, Shopify store. So we'll be able to just, no hands uh, on deck, fulfill orders anywhere and then it gets crazy. So that's all for now. Over and over. I can tell you as I'm recording this that dumbbells can be purchased for about a dollar a pound, brand new. But in these clips from the pandemic, I was buying used dumbbells for $2.50 a pound, which is why Deuce made a big bet early on in the pandemic to manufacture our own equipment in China. And that had even more challenges beyond just the financial commitment. Uh, it's 10.08 a.m. Uh, 
August, uh, who knows, August 26th. I've got about seven minutes to finish breakfast and make my way back to the gym. And I just got an email. And it's these emails that just are hilarious. Like, I don't know what anything means um, in this process of getting these fucking dumbbells from China. It's been months, months longer than expected. God knows how much money. They're supposed to arrive Monday, which is a, supposed to be a big celebration. And this is a, such a common theme when trying to do something difficult. Uh, email comes in this morning, 10.01 a.m. Hi, Logan. Customs broker informed us there may be a problem with the POA. Please provide a copy of an unexpired government-issued photo ID with signature of the person who executed the POA. And also please provide a copy of the IRS form SS4. Thank you. TRG Fulfillment Warehouse. So watch me as I go Google what the hell a POA is, if that's me. I don't think I executed one of those. Uh, but I'm the only person, I have my own ID, I do know that, so hopefully it's me, and then I can also ask, uh, what the hell an IRS form SS4 is, but the amount of unknowns only gets bigger. Who knows if a shipment of dumbbells is coming Monday, who knows if it will be received by this country, <laughs> To be continued. I can tell you now, looking back, that for a period of several months, there wasn't a single place in North America that you could buy a pair of dumbbells. Except, of course, the Deuce Gym online store. And we have the adversity of a global pandemic to thank for the fact that Deuce Gym as a company grew financially by 85%. All this because of what could be viewed as the worst thing to happen to the fitness industry in human history. If that was a test of our anti-fragility, I think we passed. While you probably don't need to brace your gym business for a pandemic or find a beeline to a dumbbell manufacturer in your lifetime, I regret to inform you that you and I we'll have more soul-crushing bouts of adversity come our way. The fact of the matter is, if you're listening to my voice right now, we know one thing is true, and that is you are specifically interested in developing yourself to greater capacity than you currently have. Ironically, adversity is a wonderful tool for doing just that. From a developmental perspective, which is argued for strongly in my book, Going Right, we can view the evolutionary properties of adversity in two ways. One, you can wait for life to grow you, or you can start seeking out adversity for yourself. Not only does seeking out the adversity found in these efforts stretch you towards the development you're seeking, it does three other important things. One, it evolves you faster than just waiting for life's struggles to do it for you. Two, it prepares you for the adversities you don't choose willingly, like a pandemic. 
And three, it gives you agency. Agency is an element of control. It's empowering. After all, the alternative is waiting for something like cancer to strike or a foreclosure or some other unforeseen struggle to grow you. I don't think any of us can afford to live a life where tragedy is our only impetus for radical growth. Everyone I sat down with for this season of the podcast has built a remarkable resilience to adversity on their way to greatness. It seems that in many ways, pursuing your peak expression is the indirect practice for the adversity that we can't prepare for directly. My friend, former Spanish champion gymnast, Carl Pauli, describes how him choosing adversity in his athletic career supported the important challenges that came with parenting a foster child later in life. For the most part, I've created adversity for myself in order to move forward because I come from a place of a lot of privilege. Mm -hmm. I've been a very privileged kid in a very privileged environment and grown up in a, a very safe environment. The only time I've faced adversity has been when either I got injured or I got sick or something out of my control happened to me that forced me to have more of an external relationship with that uh, adversity. And that came to me when Tanya and I became foster parents. And all of a sudden we had a teenager living with us and then we adopted her. And this whole process of becoming parents to a teenager, that made me have to press reset on my whole operation and like personal operating system, basically. Um, so it played a massive role. I was forced to reset. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like all all of the the mental models that I had of how you know a family should work or <laughs> right <laughs> what our relationship should be like or how how to play a role as like a father or husband. It just went out the window. Yeah. So how do you deal with that? Right. Well, the only way you can uh, deal with that is like peeling back the layers all the way down to core values, mm. basic principles, and find the common denominator that allows you to, uh, one, move, yeah. two, connect, three, be able to see the light, and then use, I haven't talked about the fourth one, but it's uh, reflection. Yeah. Be able to reflect and say, okay, what kind of progress are we making Yeah, right now? And how does it feel? And how are we measuring it? So far, we've learned a few things. Simply put, adversity is coming our way, and it has a beautiful ability to make us better. We've learned that it pays to seek it out rather than wait for it. And lastly, as founder of Fit Body Bootcamp and consultant with a net worth to the tune of hundreds of millions of dollars, Bedros Killian clearly articulates resilience in one area of your life invites resilience everywhere else in your life 2010 you know i kind of called myself i'm I'm a meathead i just lift weights and put them down right i had kind of painted myself into that corner why not go run a marathon so i trained for six weeks and went and ran a marathon it was the most painful thing i ever did but i realized that was more the suffering and the pain and the more pain i had the more put me into the zone of wanting to dominate so it is a superpower 
So I almost now go back and put myself into these challenges. Rock climbing, I was afraid of heights. Took on a six-week challenge, started climbing rocks. Um, wanted to fight a professional MMA fighter, so I hired him, trained for six weeks, went in the ring and got my ass kicked and choked out. But each time I did that, it gave me the sense of, I can get over any obstacle. And if I can get over getting choked out and punched and the, the pain of 26.2 miles on a marathon or overcoming my fear of heights, surely I can build a business. Surely I can take some criticism online, right? But not enough people are willing to build that mental, emotional toughness. If there's anything that I selfishly hope this episode would do for you, it's that this conversation would improve and even change your perception of adversity and what it means to be resilient. Likely no one can say it better than my favorite creative mind, writer and director of The Peanut Butter Falcon, starring Shia LaBeouf, Tyler Nielsen. I always just looked at adversity as an opportunity to get better. Yeah. I, I looked at a, a log in the middle of the road as an opportunity to figure out how to lift the car over it mm -hmm. um, because I had had an understanding of kind of the direction I wanted to go mm -hmm. warmly. Yeah. Um, I was going north, sometimes northwest, sometimes northeast, but you kind of yeah. have north. Yeah. Uh, you have, I, I, I still struggle. I still um, really have struggle. Like I was, I could tell you shit. Like I could tell you right now on some real deep truth shit. Like I got like less than a thousand dollars in my bank account and you would assume that I was quote rich and successful mm -hmm. because I, but like, no, like I pay, I, I'm still struggling. I still mm -hmm. have my things. I still like those things will come up no matter the horizon will keep moving to the horizon. Mm -hmm. Um, and even though it's tough right now, like, I don't know how to say this in a way that doesn't sound fucking corny, but like you will prevail and win and succeed. And if you just stay going North mm -hmm. and you might get caught up on that, that log in the middle of the road for 10 years. Mm -hmm. And that logs might name might be Ashley. And I love her. And although that I spent a lot of time with her, like eventually I moved past that. Um, and it was real scary to move. Like, and then I got comfortable around that and I got comfortable in that stagnant and that was scary to move past. Mm -hmm. And how did I move past the fear? How did I push past the fear of that? <sighs> Meditated, prayed, uh, you know, um, looked to others around me mm -hmm. that were, that had pushed past their own fear. Mm -hmm. Um, and then there was another log on the road mm -hmm. and that log's name was fill in the blank. Mm -hmm. And that problem was this. And mm -hmm. I don't know. Part of me is to be honest, part of me is like, you tell me yeah. Logan, like, I don't know if that, if, are we looking to give people? Cause I, I really, I was like, as it do, if there's no plan, just no plan B, yeah. <laughs> just no plan B. Yeah. And just what, how do you keep pushing towards the, the heat of the room? And how do you keep finding the fucking, the tiny little mm -hmm. burning bright thing that is in you that like, how do you get to that? Like you accept that sometimes there is going to be a fuck ton of pain, you know? Thank you, Tyler. The fact of the matter is adversity is inevitable, whether it's something we seek or it's something that is out of our control. The difference, though, is how we can choose to view that hardship. There's a choice to be made about how you view challenge.
The common thread throughout everyone's stories, no matter what obstacles came their way, was they chose to use that as a tailwind to propel them forward rather than a headwind that held them back. The choice is yours. This adversity conversation is naturally ripe with difficulty, but stay tuned because there's some very important alchemy that happens when you pair a boatload of preparation, like we talked about in episode three, with the challenges of this episode. It's called flow, and it could be the meaning of life. I would like to thank our team, producer William Broughton and me, Logan Gelbrick. Original musical composition by Michael Rodriguez, graphic design by Nikki Grudadaria, and directed by Ernesto Hurtado. The Hold the Standard podcast is a Rebel Talk Network production.